Our reading is from Isaiah 51, uh, verses, uh, sorry, Isaiah 41, verses 1 to 20. Isaiah 41, verses 1 to 20. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to them and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed. By a path his feet have not travelled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. The islands have seen it in fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith The one who smooths the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it is good. The other nails down the idol so that it will not topple. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear. I I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob, little Israel. Do not fear. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord, the glory and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together so that, so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Great job, uh, Nathan. We, we will, of course, miss you guys very, very much. Um, so make sure you say a farewell to Nathan and Sarah uh, later on. 
Welcome, uh, my name is Johnny Clifton, the pastor here at Redeemer. If not met you, a uh, particularly warm welcome. Great to have you here with us this morning. We are continuing our series in Isaiah. Let us pray as we come before the Lord and his word. Heavenly Father, almighty God, you say and declare some very profound things to us. And this morning, as we come to your word, as our minds might be filled with other things, other concerns, we pray that right now we would understand that there is nothing more important for us to do than to be hearing your voice. May your spirit confirm these words as being your words and open our hearts that we might hear them. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, back over the summer, it was kind of over the summer, just before the summer, I was... Um, reading a bit of, bit of light summer reading, a book called Scared to Death. It's the kind of pleasant summer reading that I enjoy as I'm sitting by the beach. Um, it was written a few years back, actually, uh, maybe five, ten years ago now, and uh, it was looking at how we are, we are prone to panic and fear. The thing with these chapters in Isaiah is that fear keeps coming up, and it's here again in these chapters. And in this book, the, 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 the claim of the authors is that very often our fear and our panic on a national level, is, is, is often irrational, makes no sense. The book goes through different events that happened, all of them presented in the media or by the state or other interest groups uh, as being potentially catastrophic. And then they pass. And it turned out they weren't as catastrophic as we thought they might be. Let me list some things. Maybe, and this is the interesting thing, maybe, um, I'm just going to move this pen. Maybe you don't even know them. Maybe you don't even remember them. And, and, and that's the point in itself. Millennium Bug. You guys any remember them? It's going to ruin all the computer systems in the world and lead to some great chaos. There was bird flu. Salmonella in eggs. Then there was BSC. We were all going to be infected by diseased cows and that was going to rip through our, our population. And, and every time these things came out, it was fear and, and panic. And the claim of the book is that perhaps sometimes our response is a bit irrational. And I think that's what we see this morning. Sometimes our fears are warranted. Sometimes, though, they're not. And I want us to, to see that the difference between a, a warranted and an unwarranted fear isn't so much what we are facing, although that does matter. It's who you are facing it with that really matters. In Isaiah 41, the Lord addresses two groups of people. Both groups are afraid, but the Lord says only one group are right to be afraid, and the other not so much. Remember where we are in the story? The Lord, through his prophet Isaiah, is speaking to his people into the future who are in exile. They've been snatched from their homeland, taken to a place they don't know, that the country, the nation of Babylon, far from home, and the Lord promises his people, I will bring you home. I will end this exile. And throughout these chapters, 40 to 55, the Lord gives all these different reasons why they can be convinced and certain that their exile is going to end. And what we see this morning is that there are times when fear makes sense and times when it doesn't. Let's think about that first of all. Sometimes fear makes sense. Now, for Israel, God's people, the biggest threat they were facing were these nations around them, Babylon, Assyria. That, that power that those nations had scared them. So in these verses, the Lord invites his people to see those nations in a different light. 
In Harry Potter, there's something called a boggart. If you find one of these boggarts, what it does, it turns into the thing that you are most scared of. The way that you overcome the boggart or overcome your fear is to imagine it looking ridiculous. A spider, a big, huge spider, that's scary. A spider wearing a tutu and with roller skates on its feet, slithering all over the place, that's less scary. In verses 1 to 8, the Lord shows his people, the nations, looking ridiculous. He shows them in a different light so that they'll be less scared. He invites his people to watch and listen as he has this imaginary conversation with the nations. Verse 1, be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. First, the Lord tells the nations to quieten down. These superpowers are full of bluster. They are full of chat, full of noise about their greatness. Silence, says the Lord. And then he puts them in their place. Look what he calls them. Islands. Think about that. The mighty China. The massive Russia. The great USA. To God, they're just islands. You have to be pretty big, pretty high up, pretty transcendent to be able to look at these great land masses and call them islands. To, to the Lord, they're just specks of, rust, uh, of rock in an ocean. And this imaginary conversation, it's set in a courtroom. It's as if the Lord is laying out evidence before the nations. Listen to what he says, verse 2. Who has stirred up one from the east? calling him in righteousness to his service. He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not travelled before. God is describing a mighty ruler who comes to power and then expands his empire. Later on, we find out the name of this ruler that God is raising up. His name is Cyrus. King of Persia. And under Cyrus, Persia, this nation, expands and it expands, knocking out other nations one after another. And the nations that Israel currently fear, Babylon, Assyria, they can see that steamroller coming towards them. And look how they feel, verse 5. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. The nations are afraid. Why? Well, because Cyrus is going to trample all over them. Because Cyrus is going to subdue them and turn them to, to dust. And you, you, you know that the threat of annihilation tends to make you a little nervous. So of course they're frightened. But I wonder if there's another reason why they are so afraid. A deeper reason. Verse 5. The islands have seen it in fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong. They're afraid. So, so, so what do they do? Well, they, they say to each other, don't panic. Be brave. Those of us who are Dad's Army fans, it's a kind of Corporal Jones moment, isn't it? Don't panic. Don't panic. But look where they turn to find this courage and this strength. Verse 7. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith, and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes with the anvil. One says of the welding, it is good, 
The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. Where does their strength come from? The metal worker strengthens the goldsmith. The one who smooths the metal strengthens the one who hammers. They're they're clearly building something, but, but what are they building? What is the source of their courage and their hope? A new weapon? Are they fortifying their cities? Make them impenetrable? No. One says of the welding, it is good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. Their source of strength, their source of courage, it is an idol, a false god. A god they have created, and it's not even a very good one. They have to nail it down so it doesn't blow over in the wind. Talking about boggarts and making the thing you fear look ridiculous. Don't the nations look a bit silly? No wonder deep down the nations are afraid. No wonder deep down they are trembling at the thought of Cyrus coming towards them because the thing they are looking to for courage and strength is something that has to be nailed to the floor so that the wind does not blow it over. You see, this kind of fear makes sense. Whatever the crisis, whether it's war or economic turmoil or a pandemic or climate change, if your ultimate hope is in an idol and a false god, well then when those threats come, of course deep down you are going to be afraid. Maybe that explains why why those around us and probably even ourselves are so prone to fear. Because deep down we're trusting not in the one true God, but in false gods. When our nation faces a threat, where do we turn? What is our hope in? Money? We'll spend or borrow our way out of this problem. Money will save us. Or power? We'll use technology and science to invent our way out of this crisis. Or we'll bomb our way out. Greater power will save us. Or self. We'll think and plan and scheme our way out of this disaster. We will save us. Think back to our national response to COVID. Why do we turn? We didn't turn to the one true God. There was no sense of humbly coming before God, of thinking that this might be some kind of opportunity to reflect on who we are as a nation and what we're about. No, as a nation, we turned to our idols. We threw money at the crisis. We threw science at the crisis. And we trusted in ourselves. There was a moment during the pandemic when the then health secretary, Matt Hancock, looked to the future and he said on the screen, we are the masters of our own fate. How terrifying is that? Money, power, self. There are idols, aren't they? Now look, it's not that money and science and technology are bad. Of course they are not bad. We should absolutely praise the Lord for those gifts. But that's it, we don't, do we? We don't even acknowledge God. And when our final and our ultimate hope lies in those things and not in the Lord, then no wonder deep down we are still infected with fear. That kind of fear makes sense. 
Earlier I said the difference between fear that is warranted and, and fear that's unwarranted is not so much what you're facing, it's who you are facing it with. Face the mighty Cyrus, trusting in an idol that has to be nailed to the floor and your right to be afraid. Face COVID, trusting ultimately in money and self and power and your right to be afraid. There is a fear that makes sense. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. Who, who, who are you facing your fears with? There's an opportunity here to face your fears with the Lord. Just before we move on, though, we need to spot something else. Those crises, those disasters and threats, they're not random. You see, in this imaginary courtroom chat with the nations, the Lord asks some questions. Verse 2, who has stirred up the one from the east, Cyrus? Who has stirred up the one who subdues kings and turns them to dust with his sword? Verse 4, who has done this and carried it through? And the answer, verse 4, I, the Lord. With the first of them and with the last, I am he. Threats, disasters, crises, whether they're personal or or, or national, they are not the random workings of history. It's the Lord who raised up Cyrus. I guess that means we have to say, doesn't it, that it was the Lord who allowed COVID to hit It is the Lord who's given Putin his moment on the stage of history. And why? So that the nations would stop trusting in their idols. Stop trusting in money, power and self. And start trusting him before it is too late. You see, what if this imaginary courtroom chat isn't actually imaginary? What if it is actually a picture of the future? A picture of the day when the Lord will bring all people into his courtroom and all people will face his judgment. If we don't trust in the Lord before that day, then it will end in tragedy for us. And so, according to the purposes of God, according to the ordaining and planning of God, disasters will come and go. Not that he was responsible for the sin and evil in this world. But according to his ordaining, strong powers will rise and fall. Nations will be invaded. Economies will fail. Pandemics will spread. Why? In the hope that the nations would see the futility of their idols and turn to the living God before it is too late. But I just wonder, will our nation ever learn Or will we continue to respond to threats and disaster with fear and money, fear and power, fear and self? When the next pandemic hits, what will it be? Science and fear. When the next war starts, what will it be? Bombs and fear. When the economy crashes again, What will it be? Borrowing and fear. 
Or as a nation, will we come to our senses? Will we fall on our knees before the living God and put our hope in him? Brothers and sisters, that is what we need to be praying for. We want to pray, Lord, keep us from disaster, yes. But if disaster comes, Lord, use that to bring our nation back to the living God. Sometimes fear makes sense because it depends who you are facing your fears with. And of course, that means sometimes it doesn't make sense. That's our second point. Sometimes fear doesn't make sense. In verses 9 to 20, the Lord speaks to his people, and for them, he has a very different message. Verse 10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Verse 13, do not fear, I will help you. Verse 14, do not be afraid. The nations might fear, and they've good reasons to be afraid, but the Lord's people, well, not so much. And the Lord gives his people three reasons why they don't need to fear. I'm going to be up front with you. We're not going to get to the third one, um, so don't worry about that. But first, don't fear, the Lord says. I will never let you go, verses 8 to 13. It's a little bit different to what's on the sheets. But anyway, don't fear. I'll never let you go, verses 8 to 13. Listen to verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. The Lord chose Israel. He sought out his people from the ends of the earth, the farthest corners. He chose them. And we can't escape that theme in scripture. The consistent teaching of the Bible is that God chooses his people. Sure, if we, if we become a Christian, we, we choose Christ. We choose to repent. We choose to follow him. But we only choose Christ because he first chose us. We, we only have the desire and the strength and the ability and the understanding to believe the gospel because he first worked in us. Now, I know we struggle with this idea, and we, we can all struggle with it, that God would choose to set his saving love on some people, but not on everyone. But then when this truth is talked about in the Bible, like here, it's, it's always meant as an encouragement, a source of joy, something to give you courage. Fear not, the Lord has chosen you. About 17 or 18 years ago, I asked uh, Laura to marry me. It was a pretty chaotic uh, proposal. It was dark, it was raining. Ring ended up on the wrong finger, I think, at some point. I can't remember what I said, but I, I like to think I said this. Um, Laura, I love you. I, I want you to marry me. I, I choose you to spend the rest of my life with. Will you marry me? I don't think I did actually say that. I say it was all a bit chaotic. It was cold. I think it was a quick on the finger, will you, and then, and then out again. Anyway, I choose you. That, that's what you say when you propose to someone. I choose you. It, it would be odd if Laura turned back and said, but, but what about all the other girls in the world? It's not fair to choose me and not them. No, obviously, she, she was delighted she didn't say that. And there, were, there, were, there were no other girls anyway, but do you know what I mean? Like, it would be an odd reaction, wouldn't it? 
the Lord chose me and you, and it's an odd reaction to say, but what about others? First, what a joy. What a delight. He chose us not because we are worthy, not because we are better, but simply because he wanted to set his love upon us. And it is a beautiful and a precious thing. And look what that means. Because the Lord chose us, he will never let us go, verse 9. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 12, those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. With his mighty right hand, the hand of strength and power, the Lord protects and defends us. And with his other hand, he takes hold of our hand and holds on to us. We have this um, kind of great picture of Elijah, our, our youngest, um, when he was uh, younger and smaller, and he's walking with uh, his, his tidies. Tidies is, is, is Welsh for, for granddad. So you've learned some Welsh this morning, if nothing else. Tidies is, is Welsh for granddad. So he, he's, he's holding on to, to um, his tidies, and tidies is tall. He's got big hands, and Elijah's very small. He has to reach up, but he's holding his tidies hand. That's the picture the Lord gives his people. Do you remember when you were small? I, I don't know if this happened, but maybe you, you were in, went into a crowded place with your parents, like maybe a train station or, or a sporting event, or maybe the underground in London. There's a sea of people everywhere. What do your parents do? They hold on to your hand. And, and with the other hand, they, they, they kind of, I think, gently navigate their way through, don't they? But never let go of you. That is the Lord with us. His powerful, mighty right hand out in front, protecting and defending, and his other hand holding on to ours, never letting go. And threats come, and disasters come, and crises hit. Do not fear, says the Lord. We face them with Him. He has chosen us and will never let us go. Do not fear. I will never let you go. Secondly, fear not. Because the fearful will be feared. Verse 14 to 16. The fearful will be feared. Listen to verse 14. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. You see, God's people are feeling small that they are small. They are tiny in comparison to the the superpowers of Babylon and Assyria or Persia. But the Lord says the tables will be turned. The fearful Israel will be feared. Listen to verse 15. I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. It's kind of an unfamiliar picture for us. Threshing and, and winnowing. It's, it's what they would have do when they, what were done when they gathered in the harvest. They would have threshed the wheat or the corn. 
And, and that process of thwe- threshing and, and, and winnowing divides the edible bits from the inedible bits. And the edible you keep, the inedible you throw to the wind. The Lord is saying to Israel, tiny Israel, worm-like Israel, you will thresh the nations. You will judge the nations. You will decide the eternal fate of the nations. How's that going to happen? How is little insignificant Israel going to decide the fate of the nation? They're going to have some weapons. There's going to be coercion. Violence, military might? No. By doing what they were always meant to do, by worshipping the one true God and declaring him to be the one true God and calling other nations to trust that God. And that task, that role has come down to us in the church. We are called to speak the truth about Jesus. To tell the world about sin and forgiveness and life everlasting in Christ. We are to speak the truth of the gospel of heaven and hell and judgment and salvation. And as we live the truth and speak the truth, the fate of people will be decided. Some will be drawn to Christ and others grow in their opposition to him. Listen to how Paul puts it in the New Testament. He says in in 2 Corinthians, it will be on the screen, but thanks be to God who uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death. To the other an aroma that brings life. See what Paul is saying? As the Christian holds out the truth of Christ, as the Christian lives under the lordship of Christ, they divide people. Some are drawn to Jesus, they hear the message, they hear life and hope and joy, and they believe. Others hear the message, and they hear death and slavery, and they hate it. Like Israel, we we Christians feel small, we feel insignificant we can be fearful but like Israel we decide the fate of the nations how people respond to us and our message and our lives will determine their eternal fate we the fearful are to be feared I don't know how you feel about that Maybe you feel the weight of responsibility. Maybe you feel a bit daunted, and I think those are good reactions. Maybe you think, I don't want to be divisive. This isn't the kind of person I am. And I get that. I get that most of us want a quiet life, don't we? We don't want to cause division in our families, or in our homes, or in our workplaces. We don't want to upset people cause them to dislike us, and and that's good. We we should pursue that. That should not be our goal and our ambition. The hard reality is, if we live under the lordship of Christ, if we follow the teachings of Jesus, then we will divide people. In some ways, it's impossible to fully follow Christ and not be divisive. 
And that is how God intended it to be. Speak of Jesus and you will be divisive. Some will, will love him, some will hate him. Live according to the ethics of Jesus and you will be divisive. You can't help it. And that's how God intended it to be. Uh, Jim Elliot, missionary in, in the 20th century, lost his life um, sharing the, the, the gospel. Um, and he used to pray this prayer, be, be on the screen. He used to pray, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to a decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. That's what Isaiah is talking about, what the Lord in Isaiah is talking about, that he would make us crisis people. The Lord would make us forks in the road so that men and women have to turn one way or the other towards Christ or away from him. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord. I will make you a threshing sledge. You will thresh the mountains or the nations and crush them. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. Fear not, because the fearful will be feared. When Jesus is arrested... You read the account, there's an incredible calm, isn't there, about the Lord Jesus. He's not afraid, because as he looks at his captors, he knows that how they respond to him will determine their eternal fate. When the Apostle Paul is arrested, he too is always calm, reasonable, looking to persuade. Why? Because he knows how his captors respond to him will determine their eternal fate. Brothers and sisters, with God, we, the fearful, will be feared. If ever you find yourself under intense scrutiny for your faith or challenged by friends or work or authorities, or if you feel you're wondering whether you should bring up the Lord Jesus with this person in front of you, and talk to them. You might feel many things, but don't let fear be one of them. Compassion, yes. Love, yes. Sensitivity, concern, a heart for the person in front of you, even if they are your captors, yes. But not fear. How they respond to you could determine their eternal fate. The fearful will be feared. The eternal fate to those around us depends on their reaction to us and the gospel message we hold out. Sometimes fear makes sense. Depends who you are facing your fears with. But for the Christian, it doesn't make sense when we face those threats that we face because we face them with the Lord God Almighty. And he says to us, fear not, I will never leave you. And fear not, because you who are currently fearful, you're the ones to be feared.
as you hold out the message of the Lord Jesus. Remember the choir, I'm going to pray. Do not fear, says the Lord, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Heavenly Father, whatever the future is for us, may we learn that if we face it with you, we don't have to be afraid. Lord, that is such a hard thing. We pray that your spirit would give us every reason and every understanding of you and every bit of courage to know that we face whatever we face with you holding our right hand and defending us with your mighty and powerful right hand. In Jesus' name, amen.